I regain consciousness, and the first thing I remember, I'm shaking. I'm trembling. I'm quivering. I'm cold. It's 40 degrees out. I'm wearing a t-shirt. I've been lying on the ground, not moving. So I'm orienting myself. I think I must be in my house. I'm in the basement doing something. I don't remember what. I open my eyes, and sure enough, I'm in the basement. I'm on the floor. I don't know why I'm on the floor. I then remember hearing voices and footsteps nearby, above me, on the floor above me. My wife and kids are waking up, getting ready for school. This is early in the morning. This is miles from anywhere. There are no neighbors, immediate neighbors, living there that time of the year. And I remember thinking, who is that man standing in front of me? Ten feet away from me, directly in front of me, is a tall man staring at me. Looks like an old man. The man is oddly dressed. He's very tall. He's wearing a dark-colored robe with a hood. And the hood shadows his eyes, but I could see his face very clearly. Pronounced cheekbones, a strong jawline, broad face, a bit of stubble on his cheeks and chin, unshaven for a couple of days. He slowly raises his right arm to me, and three times, with a big, bony index finger, slowly beckons me. My only mission at this point is to get away. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Points Unknown. I have this amazing job, not a job, I have a career. I finally found work that I'm happy calling my life's work. I was administrator of the Conservation Commission, the head of a department, a town department. It was challenging, I just got a raise. It was all all good in the professional world. Personally, on the personal front, I've got two healthy young kids, but the biggest thing that's happening is I'm building a house. I'm building an entire five bedroom home by myself the ground up. I've designed it. I'm building it. We had just moved into it and it's a plywood shell. It's it's absolutely completely unfinished. And moved in is not the right verb. We were camping there. We had literally tents set up in the bedroom. We're camping in the bedroom. I'm waking up every morning, opening my eyes and seeing this raw plywood, raw frame of a house and rejoicing in what I'm seeing, smiling understanding that everything I see, I have designed and I've built. I'm loving it. It's rough. It's cold and it's rough and the wind's coming through and it's dirty and that's okay. That's just part, that's a temporary, that's part of the process. But my wife was waking up every morning and she's none too happy about it all. She didn't want this house in the first place. I mean, she wanted a house certainly, but she wanted to just buy a house and move into it and have it be done. Um, I'm at work all day. I'm at work eight, nine hours a day. She's at home. She's responsible for the kids, trying to bathe the kids, prepare their meals, clean the house, and there are no facilities. There's no toilet. We were in very different spaces, understandably. I honestly didn't know how deeply she felt about her misgivings about this house. Because a week later... As we're lying in bed, excuse me, there is no bed. We're lying on the floor. 
were lying in sleeping bags on the floor in the master bedroom floor. My wife told me she's finished. She's finished with this house and she's finished with his marriage. She wants a divorce. I didn't sleep well that night. I got up very, very early, maybe 4.30 in the morning. I went down to the basement. I want to get my hands busy, get my mind off at night before, get this darn project rolling forward. I took on a task that I had, frankly, put off. I was preparing for the concrete floor in the basement to be poured, and I was laying out six by six inch wire mesh that comes in a roll, three feet wide, 50 feet long. You buy it in a coil. And I'd spread out nine, maybe 10 rolls at this point and was short a piece about six feet. And it really irked me to buy that last $300 roll of wire for six feet of it. But I eventually did it. And I put the roll down the basement, the whole roll in the basement, and I'll get to it. Well, the morning after my wife asked for the divorce, I got to it. All I have to do is cut the bands holding this roll together, uncoil about a six foot long piece of it, cut it off, lay that six foot long piece of wire mesh down on the floor and I'm finished with that project. Should have taken me five minutes. I was not in a great state of mind. I hadn't slept well and I was very distracted. I remember cutting the wire roll open. I cut the bands holding the roll together one by one by one. And before I cut the last band, I'm preparing to stand up and put my foot against the roll and stretch it, uncoil it, unbend it. But when I cut that last band, as I'm leaning over it, the roll exploded open, uncoiled with terrific force and speed. And I fall, I hit the ground hard. I'm out for about 20 minutes. I only know it was 20 minutes because my wife says I was down there for that long. I regain consciousness, and the first thing I remember, I'm shaking, I'm trembling, I'm quivering, and I'm in very serious shock. Who is that man standing in front of me? He slowly raises his right arm to me, and three times, with a big, bony index finger, slowly beckons me. My only mission at this point is to get away. I'm terrified. I try to get up off the ground. I get my knees, my back up in the air. I can't move my head. My head's stuck on something. I reach up, I feel around, there's something up there, and I just rip it out. I remember struggling to get up. That took a great deal of effort to get up off the ground. I slowly get to my feet. It took me a long time to stand up, and I slowly stumble away. I walk about 40 feet to the bottom of the basement stairs. It takes me several minutes to get there. By the time I get there, I've transitioned from fleeing from this man into a different space. Where is your father's three-hole punch? My only question of my wife when I yelled up to her was, where is your father's three-hole punch? It was such an odd question that it got her attention. 
It sounded like something was wrong. I guess my voice was a little bit odd. She immediately came to the top of the stairs. She sees me at the bottom of the stairs. I'm leaning against the wall. My shoulders are drooped. My arms are hanging down. I'm looking down. And I'm staring at the ground. And I'm not moving. She comes down the stairs. I slowly look up at her. And my face is ashen, white. And there's a small trickle of blood coming on my left temple. And she asked me very pointedly what happened. Subtext was, what did you do to yourself? She told me later that the thought suicide came to her mind. And I launch into a several-minute soliloquy about the price of oil in the Middle East, comparing heavy crude and light crude prices between Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. And then I pause, and I say very clearly, almost in a different voice, the wire bit me. Very matter-of-factly, the wire bit me. She stops, she looks around, she sees the work light up on the far side of the basement. She runs over there looking for some clues. What is this wire he's talking about? Sure enough, she sees this tangled roll of wire mesh. At the end of that roll of wire mesh, every six inches is a six-inch long piece of wire, end of which she sees one of the tines is covered in blood, all the way up to the hilt with pieces of brain matter stuck to it. I pull the six-inch wire out of my brain, which, for future reference, is not something one should ever, ever do. Six inches through my brain, right through the base of my brain. Punctures my hypothalamus, I learned later, right in the very, very bottom. The wire is two and three millimeters away from three different arteries. Two and three millimeters through my away from three arteries, and by the grace of God, or just darn good luck, it doesn't hit the arteries coming out. If paramedics had gotten to me, they absolutely would not have removed that wire. They would have let the surgeons do it. She runs back to me, helps me up the stairs, sits me down, picks up her cell phone, and dials 911, which back then answered 90 miles away. Didn't have that patience. As far as she knew, I was dying. She hung up on them, woke up our two daughters, ages five and seven, put them in the car, in their car seats in the back, put me in the passenger seat. I remember the car fishtailing wildly down the quarter-mile dirt road to the main road to the hospital. She slowed down for the rotary to make that turn, and I did what's very common with head injuries. I projectile vomited all over the windshield, all over the dashboard, all over myself, and then immediately lost consciousness. I don't believe I was sedated. I don't think you sedate a head-injured patient but I don't remember any of this. Get to the hospital, doctor examines me, immediately calls for helicopter from Boston, packages me up for the trip, $18,300 flight, land at Brigham and Women Hospital, and I was in intensive care for six weeks. Week five, my arms are restrained. I went through a period of waking up from a sleep, confused about where I was, I would pull the IVs out of my arms which really irritated the nurses. I'm bored to tears. Now the corner of my eye at one point, I see some movement in the doorway, and I remember for a moment my spirit's lifting, thinking, awesome, a doctor, a nurse, a friend, someone to talk to. And I turn to greet whomever is at the door, and there again is this tall, dark, cloaked, hooded man. He was just standing in the doorway, just letting me know he's there. 
no gestures, no facial expressions, just just simply standing there. And this time I'm actually strapped down. I can't get away. I turn my head away and shut my eyes and I remember two thoughts. One, this is my imagination. Two, if this is actually happening, get the fuck away from me. I want to live. I want to survive. And I slowly turn my head back and open my eyes and look toward the doorway. And he was gone. Time passed. I was in the hospital for nine months. $1.2 million worth of medical care. Moved back to the island. Returned to the house. Work had been done on the house in my absence. And my wife showed me her bedroom and showed me my bedroom. I didn't object to that. I was just glad to be alive, glad to be back. And every single time for the first two, three months, I walked down to the basement to get something. I would walk down the stairs, stop at the bottom of the stairs and close my eyes, compose myself, open my eyes and look around, look around the entire basement and make sure he wasn't there. Oh my God, it didn't even occur to me that you were in the same house that this all happened. Yeah. 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 It was it was tough being in that space, and it was very, very odd to stand looking at the exact spot where the wire went through my brain. The wire going through your hippocampus. Hypothalamus. Hypothalamus. What does that mean for your brain? I In terms of physiologically? Yeah, what did it do? All I know about the hypothalamus is that that controls the testosterone, which I no longer produce, that controls thirst... A full year after the accident, back on the island, back in the house, I woke up one morning, I went to the sink, and I was thirsty. I turned the water on and I got a drink of water, big 16-ounce glass of water, and I drank the whole thing. I turned the water back on and I drank that second glass. I'm still feeling thirsty and I drank the third glass. I'm starting to scratch my head a bit. My belly's feeling full of water and I'm still thirsty. You can drink yourself to death. You can drink so much water that your sodium levels in your blood go dangerously low and it will lead to death. Unfortunately, after three weeks, that switch reversed itself and I went back to a normal drinking pattern. And that was a full year after the accident. And that's damaged the hypothalamus. I take five different medicines on a regular basis, the most marked of which is this testosterone patch that I wear. The testosterone, when I have been without it, I have been keenly aware of that, of how it affects my mood, my sense of myself. I become depressive. Uh, my energy level is very, very low. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible and yet very subtle change in, in my state. And I have found no natural alternative to wearing this very, very expensive patch that I put on my arm every day. You know, the only other switch that's gone off, it occurred to me some years after my accident 
that I hadn't remembered a single dream in the morning. My dreaming stopped entirely. People say it's amazing that you're standing here, that one can survive a heavy-duty, rusty, six-inch piece of wire through one's brain and still be able to function as well as I can is, is remarkable. And I appreciate that. What they don't see is the more subtle changes in my behavior that this has caused. Um, like what? The lack of motivation, lack of drive, lack of focus. Um, my dis my dis inhibit disinhi- dis disinhibitation. Lack of inhibition. Lack, lack of inhibition. Yeah, that 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 allows me to tell the story so freely to so many people. That's a function of the accident. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, on the front. This is this is. I've always I've always been a very gregarious person, very open, very talkative, and even more so after the accident. I tell that story, my wife says more often than I should, and that's okay. Um, I've I never had stories. I never had my own stories until relatively recently. And when I talk to people, I and I talk to people a great, great deal out and about on the street with my unicycle or what have you. I used to tell stories, and I I enjoy it in a way I never had done before. And that feels good. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does, yeah. It feels good, yeah, it does. Tell us about the unicycle. Mm. The unicycle's awesome. I started riding the unicycle when I was six, maybe seven years old. It's always been something exceptional that I've been able to do that I've gotten a great deal of, of satisfaction from. People have been curious about getting up on a unicycle and I just help them up. I do that all the time. I love breaking through that barrier and helping them and teaching them how to ride a unicycle, which has happened many, many times. But yeah, there's another piece of this, that of the, the, of the disinhibition. Um, I was once... This is probably the one of the most painful moments of my life. I was downtown uh, with some friends. A friend, some friends own a business down there, and I often spent time down there. And uh, there are many young people working at the store, and numbers of them have been interested in my unicycle, and I've helped them up on the unicycle, and that's sort of been a place I've gone to hang out, just walking with my unicycle. And and there were two boys with a group that were interested in the unicycle and then they I may have helped one of them up on it but we were talking for a little while about it and like 20 minutes later a woman with her family came walking on the street near where I was and I, at that at this point I was engaging in conversation with another person a young a young I don't know 20 something young man and the woman as she's walking past yells out she said, run away, run away as fast as you can. All he does is talk to young men. And she said some other things that were just just mortifying, yelling. She's yelling this over, over a good distance away as she's clutching her children. What? 
It was deeply disturbing. It was very embarrassing. When she started doing this, I thought she was being just, I thought she was playing melodramatically, playing a role. For what reason, I didn't know, but then I understood, then I came to, I, I was I was in absolute disbelief, and I understood that what she's talking about is is a fear of me and my interaction with, with other people. Maybe, I don't know. It was a very, very bizarre, unnerving, confusing experience. I think prior to my brain accident, I perhaps may have been more sensitive to that and would have prevented that from happening, happening in the first place. Is, is it possible for you to remember what your brain and perception was like before the uh, accident? Interesting. Um, blessedly, for the most part, I cannot. Because if I could, that would drive me to a very, very dark place. But I can trick myself. I can fool myself into an understanding. Yeah, it's not the way it was, but it's not so different. When actually I know that it probably is very, very different. Prior to my accident, I should say, I was hypersensitive to the perception of others, to a fault. I've never talked about this. To the extent that I would sort of subjugate myself. I'm a big guy, but I would try to sort of cower and shrink down to nothingness so that I wouldn't influence what was going on. And through that, developed a real keen sensitivity to others' perceptions and indeed others' needs on the positive side. And since the accident, I, I, may, I may have lost that. I had no idea that my engaging those young people in conversation about the unicycle was in any vaguest way a threatening, unusual behavior in the least. To the contrary, it felt like it felt very like a warm human interaction with strangers, which is rare and I might say should happen more, that people can feel comfortable and just talking to one another. I was terminated from my job. My future, my work future was highly questionable and it was a good one. So after the accident, I was working construction for a while. And at one point, Saturday, we were working in Sconset, a couple miles away. The concrete truck was coming to pour the, the garage floor, but we were missing this six by six inch reinforcement wire mesh. And it was after everything had closed, all the stores had closed, and it was something of a crisis because the truck was on its way and we, it would be poured no matter what. And I said to the guy I was working for that I know where there's a role. And by myself, I should not have been alone, but I drove back to my house and went to the back portion of the property where this very role that had been pulled in my brain was sitting. I did it with extreme care. Every single motion, I secured the wire. It was already rolled up and coiled up and secured, but I resecured it and I held it at full arm's length and just was very, very careful with how I, how I dealt with it. I lifted that roll into the back of the truck 
drove back, parked, and said, there it is, I'm not going to touch it again. It was a very, very unsettling, unnerving, difficult trip to have made by myself. I should not have been, I should not have been alone with that. How many years later was that? Hmm. Only, that was a year and a half, less than a year and a half later. I can't believe it was still there. Oh, yeah, it was, yeah. It had been stuck, stuck out back. We were in deep trouble as a family. I think that we went into crisis mode. We circled the wagons and the luxury of experiencing happiness in marriage and satisfaction in marriage was put aside. My wife was overwhelmed with raising the kids finishing the construction of the house, working to pay the mortgage. I wasn't helping much. I was working a bit, but not steadily. And I honestly was not doing my share. And I think it was very frustrating for her. And I totally understand this, but she she arranged with my mother for me to go live with them for an indefinite period of time to give herself a break. And I went out to Kansas where they lived, Eastern Kansas. And I was out there for almost three years, coming back for holidays and vacations and so on. They lived about an hour away from Lawrence, Kansas. And I would go into town two, three times a week. One day, I was driving home during rush hour, early evening. Major intersection, red light, stopped. First in line, probably five lanes in all directions. Turning lanes, left, right lanes, lots of lights going on. I'd had a great day. I was maybe a little bit tired. And I am sitting in the driver's seat, and I've got my head turned. I'm looking through some papers in the passenger seat, leafing through them. Every so often glancing up the light to make sure it's red. Back down to the papers. But I'm not paying attention. One of my glances is my eyes go from the lights, the traffic lights, which are still red, look down to the papers. I see in the far corner of the intersection, probably 80 feet away, leaning against the lamppost, the same familiar man, the tall man with the dark cloak and the hood. And even though I can't see his eyes, I perceive he is staring directly into me. And I am terrified. Because in the next minute or two, I'm going to die. That's what the presence of that man was telling me. And I couldn't put those papers down fast enough. I grab the steering wheel, both hands firmly on the steering wheel, and I'm looking ahead. I'm looking actually in the eyes of every driver I can see, trying to figure out who's about to lose control, who is about to have a seizure, who is about to do something that's going to cause an accident that's going to kill me. And I'm working myself into a bit of a frenzy. The light eventually turns green, and I sit there, and the car is behind me. There's 20 cars probably behind me. It's rush hour. They start to honk their horn. I slowly put my foot on the accelerator, slowly pass through that intersection, and as I pass by the man, I pass rather close to him. As I pass by him, his entire body turns, so he's always facing me. I don't see his feet move, but his whole body just turns facing me the entire time. Every muscle in my body is tightly clenched against impact. And I, and I pass on through. I make it through. 
It was a mess. I was shaking. I was crying. I absolutely should not have been driving. I should have pulled over, but I was just, I just stayed in the right-hand lane. I was going about 15 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone during rush hour. Cars are having to go around me. I'm just moving forward, getting away from that guy, staying safe, being safe. I said two words out loud, perhaps as though I were crazy. I simply said, thank you. Thanked him for the role he played in keeping me safe. It was a total mental construct. My heart was saying, get the hell away from me. Leave me alone. I want no part of you. But my mind was saying, okay, maybe, just maybe he's actually on your side. Maybe he's looking after you. The third time was different. The third time, I concluded my experience with him with those two words by saying thank you. My mind was saying, let's try to put this into a rational context to give yourself some peace. I perhaps tell the story as often as I do so I can, I'm looking for interpretation, insight, you know, feedback from other people. So I told the story to a young man, 25 year old guy in the bus, hour and a half bus ride. So what do you do for work? Well, not working like I used to because I had this accident. And I went on into describing my story and describing this man. End of my story, he paused for a little bit, very thoughtfully, and said to me, that man is God. And telling my story to Christians, I, some of them said, my gosh, what, what more does it take? You've, you've had a vision that is so obviously calling you to Jesus, and you're ignoring it. <laughs> and yet I, 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 I'm not compelled. I'm intrigued, but not, not convinced that doesn't comport in any way with what I experienced. I don't believe there's a devil in this world. However, this tall, dark, cloaked figure beckoning me with his right index finger, there was no love or kindness or friendship or compassion or care. It was a bully daring me on the schoolyard. Are you religious? I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in this stuff. Spiritually very, very curious, but no convictions. Do you think he's real? Like, was it a figment of your mind? After the first time that I saw him, I I immediately dismissed that as as I had a wire through my head that stimulated certain parts of the brain that that led to this this vision. Second time when I saw him, you know, I was in intensive care. I don't know what was happening to me medically at that point. I was still in ICU. I wish I could pinpoint exactly when that happened and go to the records and find out what was happening to me medically, but can't do that. The last time I saw him, I was I was well. I was as well as I am now. And I can't easily dismiss it as a as a as a as a fiction of my brain accident. It really gives me pause. I don't have the understanding of this. I need to create a story, a story that has a, a rational conclusion, 
And thinking about it, my seeing him directly caused me to change my behavior in a way that was self-protective. The first time when I saw him, I tried to get away, which led me to pulling the wire out of my brain, and I got help, which got me to the hospital and saved my life. The second time I saw him, while I've struggled with any interpretation of that, was very self-empowering. I did assert my interest in living. The last time when I was in traffic not paying attention, he scared me into paying very, very close attention to what was happening around me. I don't know that there would have necessarily been an accident, but certainly he put me in a position of, 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 of avoiding that. Um, you asked if I was spiritual? Yeah. I have very few convictions about any of this stuff, but I'm very comfortable now with the notion that the energies from past human experiences, positive energy, negative energy, that those energies somehow reside in a given place. Some people might call them ghosts. Um, sorry, now I'm, maybe I'm rambling. Do you think that you will see that figure again? I almost know that if I do see him again, it will be under very dire circumstances. And so I hope it's not for a long, long time. But I know that if I see him again, I will attempt to engage him in conversation. That's it for Love and Radio. The show was produced by Justine Paradise, Brendan Baker, and myself, with special thanks to Rob Rosenthal. We are a production of Radiotopia, whose founding sponsors are the Knight Foundation and MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>